Kate and I used to uh, watch a lot and love the show Shark Tank. Any fans of Shark Tank out there? A couple, a couple of them. Um, uh, you know, Shark Tank I watch is a show where people come on there and they pitch their business or their product or their service uh, to the sharks, which are these millionaires and a couple billionaires, uh, asking them to invest in their business, their company. And one of the things that always fascinating uh, was that the person would come up and give their pitch, here's my product, here's my service, here's why it's so great, uh, and then they would have to tell you what they were asking for, right? Like how much uh, money versus, and how much stake they were asking for, right? And so they would say, we're looking for $100,000 and uh, you know, a 20% stake in the company or something like that. But what was always so funny to me was when uh, someone would get up there and they would really, really love their company so much that they would overvalue it. And so they would say, man, we're looking for like a million dollars and we're looking to give you like 0.5% of our company. And anytime somebody would do that, all the sharks would be like, <laughs> you know, they, they would like scoff and, and, and laugh and be like, bro, you crazy. And then they would counter offer, right, if they were in, interested they would counter offer, and uh, you know they would say, uh, we're, "We're not going to give you a million for like a half a percent. Like, like I'll give you half a million for thirty percent, right?" And then the person who owns the company is just like offended, taken aback, like. Who do you, this is my company, you know, and, and they would be all offended or whatever. And, like, it's worth so much more than that. Its value is so much more than that. And it's interesting because, peop, you know, when you talk about what is a, a business worth, there's a lot of data. There's money, how much have you made, how long have you been there, how much money do you have, all these things, projections, whatever. Uh, but there's also this subjective element, how much do you think you're going to make, how much do you think it's worth, how much do you, what, what does the future look like, what does the economy look like, what does this service look like. Like There's a lot of things that go into that. And so there's a lot of subjective nature over its value. It's what I think versus what you think. And there's kind of this wrestling over, well, how much is this thing actually worth? And sometimes it can be difficult to determine. But when it comes to people, when it comes to humanity, whether or not people have value isn't complicated or how much people have isn't complicated. It's not subjective. It's not based on my feelings or your feelings. It's not, wor- it's not based on how much money they have or how much value they bring to the world or how bright their future is. Their value comes from their creator, particularly the reality that they are created in the image of God. And that value that they intrinsically have as people, made in God's image, affects how we view and treat them. That's what we're going to be looking at today in our second week on Membership Matters, looking at our new church covenant. Before we go much further, though, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our church Thank you that we get to covenant together around truth and around how we live. Father, bless this morning. Teach us, instruct us. We love you in Christ and we pray all people said. So last week, we started this new series called Membership Matters where we're looking at our new church covenant that we want to formally adopt, that you as members will vote to adopt and affirm at our next members meeting uh, here in a little bit. Uh, We want to do this because we want to take our ecclesiology, which is the, the doctrine of the understanding of the church, um, uh, more seriously, we want to have a deep, robust understanding of our ecclesiology and what it means to be a member of a church, that we're not just consumers of the church, but covenant members together of the church. We want to take that deeply and seriously. So if the doctrine, uh, or if, if our doctrinal statement 
tells you what you must believe to be a member of our church. Then our church covenant tells us how you should live before people and before God to be a member of our church. Last week we said that the basis of our covenanting together was we must all have the same anchor, being rooted in the gospel. We must have the same aim, that our life's aim is to glorify God, that we have to have the same attitude, our joy in the Lord, and that we must have the same authority that we submit to the scriptures. Today, I want to show you how our covenant calls us to treat each other, how it calls us to live with each other, how we as individuals of the church uh, take the value that we see in everyone else, what that looks like, and, and how we bring value. What does it look like to treat each other with dignity? So before we start, I want to answer that foundational question. Does every human have value? And I've preached whole sermons on this, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. But I wanted to set it up this way. Does every human have value? And the answer is yes. We see in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 that God creates animals and plants and angels and demons and the earth and the sun and the stars. He creates everything. And when he looks at everything he creates, he says it is good. But when he creates humanity, he says it is very good. And when he creates humanity, he says, let us, us being the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So we are the only thing out of all of the created universe that is made in the image and the likeness of God. Humanity is. We are the crown jewel of God's creation. And we see the implications of that truth, that theology, played out really quickly in the book of Genesis. So that happens in Genesis 1 and 2. But then in Genesis chapter 9, God institutes the death penalty because he says that when you destroy the image of God, it is such a heinous crime that you too deserve death. So we live out this implication everywhere in our lives. We live it out in the way we view the poor. The way we view the downcast, the way we view the illegal alien who snuck into our country illegally, how we view every race of people, how we view every political enemy, how we view the unborn. We say, you matter, you have value, you have dignity, you have worth, you have the spark of divinity in you, you bear the image of God. That doesn't mean we don't disagree with people. It doesn't mean we don't put people in jail. It doesn't mean we don't deport people or even put people to death. It means we don't, it means the way we, we don't view them and treat them like animals. That there is something fundamentally different in humanity that we don't discard them, but we treat them as fellow image bearers with dignity. Um, and so it has implications for how we treat people. But this morning, what I want to do is focus not on how this image of God causes us to treat outsiders. I've preached on that many times. Uh, but I want to talk about how, the, how people having value makes us treat insiders. How do we treat each other in the church? How do we treat our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who we co- are covenanting together with? The re- you know, one of the reasons, or the reason we call each other brother and sister isn't, isn't just like a tradition or isn't just like some weird church culture. The reason that churches historically have called each other brother and sister is because we actually believe that that is true. That when we come into the family of God, we've actually been made brothers and sisters. Because now we have the same father. God is our father. Jesus is our savior. And we are in one new big family. We actually believe that's true. Uh, that we've trusted in Christ. And so now we uh, are in the family together. Many of you have followed uh, our family uh, and, you know, we have four biological kids, and we uh, last year adopted another, Eli, and, into our family. 
And, and Eli, uh, he, he's been in our home for about two years. Uh, he uh, is about to turn five, and he is a tremendous blessing and a tremendous handful at the same time. Uh, he, his nickname is Gentle Hands, given by Nate, and, uh, because, you know, he's, he'll, he'll just sock you, you know, sometimes. Uh, and so we call him Gentle Hands because uh, we're always saying, hey, Gentle Hands, buddy, Gentle Hands. And so he, he can be a handful. But last week, Lewin, our other son, uh, looked at Eli in this sweet moment, and he said, you are the best brother in the whole world. And Kate texted me and told me about that. And uh, that night, I was sucking Lewin, Lewin in bed, and I said, buddy, mommy told me what you said about Eli. That was so sweet that you said he was the best brother in the whole world. And Lewin didn't understand why it was so sweet. He was like, well, I mean, he is. <laughs> so, so, of course I said it, because he is. You see, Lewin and Eli, and, and Eli is a part of our family, uh, they are brothers not because they share the same DNA. They don't. They are brothers because they share the same last name. We in the church are family not because we share DNA. We don't. We are family because we share the same Savior. And now we have the same Father. You see, the church is our true and eternal family. I want you to write that down. The church is our true and eternal family. Guys, so often our biological family is difficult, right? Uh, our biological family, like, can, there can be some tension, right? Sometimes you drift away from one another. Uh, uh, sometimes you just don't have anything in common, so you never talk. Uh, you're not close. Uh, so often there are problems and fights that have happened that have splintered your family, and you just don't see each other anymore. You don't talk to each other. And so often that is the complete opposite within the church, that our church family sometimes can seem like, more of a family than our biological family. Our church family can sometimes seem deeper and richer and more vibrant, right? It can feel that way, especially if your biological family isn't believers, aren't followers of Jesus. Um, And it can feel that way because it's true. The church is actually our family and will be our family forever and ever and ever and ever. There are some of us in this room who have biological family who have not believed and might persist in that unbelief and never believe. And we have people in this room who have and have become family with, and we will be with these people for eternity, where some people in our biological family, we might not be. And so this is our true and forever actual family. Um, Some of you when you hear this idea of family, the church being a family, like that doesn't inspire like warm fuzzies in you, right? Because when you think about your own family, it is full of negative emotions and negative feelings. Uh, Some of you, the idea of family is hard, right? Uh, Like uh, when you hear this idea that God is making us a big family deep down, you know kind of the way family should be, but you've never experienced it for yourself. Um, And so what I want you to hear is that when we're talking about this idea of an eternal family, it is the family that you always dreamed your family could be. In Christ, we have the perfect model, uh, or in in God, we have the perfect model of a father and how a father should be. In Christ, we have the perfect example of a brother and how a sibling should be. And so we are sinful, broken people. We are not perfect siblings toward one another right now. Um, But there is a day coming when God makes us whole and perfect and righteous where we will be perfect siblings toward one another. And right now what we are trying, our aim to do is to be 
the perfect siblings toward one another that we will one day be. We're trying to do that now. And we're going to fail at it, but we're trying. We're going after that. So that's really our focus for today. What does a true eternal church family look like? That's really kind of what I want to answer. What does it really look like us for us to be a church family, to be a real family, eternal family? What does that look like? How does that play out in the life of our church? Not because So we have value by being in the image of God, but we also have value because we're the, in the same family. So how does that play out? Well, I want to read to you the second part of our covenant. Um, uh, it's in your worship guide. It'll be on the screen. It says this. Believing that everyone is valuable, we will treat everyone with the dignity they are due as image bearers of God. We will fight to maintain our unity in the body of Christ, always loving, serving, and forgiving one another as Christ has done for us. We will commit to using our God-given spiritual gifts to serve our church, our neighbors, and the world, bringing value which we can uniquely bring. So three big ideas I want to get out of this section of the covenant. Three ideas that flow from the foundational idea that we have value and that we are a family. So John chapter 13 verse 35 says this, that by this all people will know that you are my disciples if, how will they know? If you have love for one another. The world will know you're my disciple by the way they see you love each other. And then Ephesians 4, 1 and 2 says, I therefore, a prisoner of the, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. These are just two examples of what uh, sometimes we, we kind of categorize or talk about in the scriptures, these things called the one another's, the one another's of scripture. And these are commands from God for how we are to treat one another. Okay, uh, inside the church, inside this family, how do we treat one another? Well, there are over 100 instances in the New Testament of these commands, and there are 59 unique or specific commands for how we are to treat one another. I could preach an entire sermon series on this. Can't do that. I ain't got time for that. So we're going to kind of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through a quick synopsis of, of most of them, and then we're going to kind of hit it in broad strokes. So here are, here are a bunch of the one another's. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another, live in harmony with one another, build up, be like-minded, accept, admonish, care for, serve, bear with one another, forgive, be patient with, submit to one another, look to the interests of one another, teach, comfort, encourage, exert, stir up, pray for, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another. And there's, it goes on for a little while longer, 59 of them. But that's, that's kind of just, here, and here's the big point I want you to get from this. By practicing the one another's of Scripture, the church radically loves every member. This is the implication for how we treat one another. By practicing these one another's of Scripture, the church, we are radically loving every member. That's what we want to do. We want to practice these. That's how we want to live together. That's the kind of siblings we want to be. You know, so often when we think about this word love, when we think about, man, I just love them, love that, whatever, it is this sentimental feeling. Love is this feeling. Well, uh, we tell people that we love them, and it is words accompanied by emotion. But love should not merely be this ethereal, touchy-feely, emotional thing only, but rather love is manifested in action. Love is, is proved through action. 
It is shown through self-sacrifice. It is shown by doing. Love is a verb. Love has hands and love has feet. And our greatest example of love has nail-pierced hands and nail-pierced feet. Love isn't merely a word or a feeling. It is an action. And so when we say we love our church, when we say we love the people in our church, it's got to be more than mere words and feelings. It has to be shown through how we act and treat them. So in the covenant, we lay out kind of three broad examples that we're trying to encompass the idea of these one another's. So we say, love, serve, forgive one another. Because if we are striving to do those things, we're trying to love each other, serve one another, forgive one another, we're going to hopefully try to accomplish all of these one another's. If our desire is to love and serve people, that takes away feelings of entitlement. If my goal is to love you and to serve you, then I'm going to give up my preference, give up my selfishness, give up my entitlement. When you are loving and serving others, it's really hard to be self-centered. When my focus is on you, it's hard for my focus to be all about me. And so when someone's kid is behaving in a way that in church that you think is problematic, your first thought isn't, man, they need to get their kid under control. They're in church. But rather, your first thought is, how can I encourage that mother? How can I help that mother? Maybe it's just praying from a distance for them, or maybe it's going up and giving them an encouraging word, or maybe it's holding the baby they have in their hands so they can wrangle the other kid that's running around acting like a lunatic. We want our first thought not to be, man, this situation is inconvenient for me, and I don't like it. It's hard on me. Instead, we want our first thought to be, man, how can I help? How can I be there? How can I lighten the load? How can I be an encouragement? How can I help and come alongside? Here's the truth. We don't always like to acknowledge this, but every one of us in this room, every single one of us in this room is not here in a vacuum, meaning everyone here in this room has messy lives. (laughs) We just lie about them. We just put on a good face, a good mask, and come in here and act like everything's sunshine and rainbows. When some of you guys on the way to church this morning, you got in a big fight with your spouse, and you said some mean, nasty things to one another, and now you're just pretending. Some of us in this room are struggling with uh, a diagnosis that you have gotten that is really scary, and you don't know what your future in life looks like. There are some people in this room, and your family is in shambles. And you don't know how to fix it. Your marriage is in shambles and you don't know how to fix it. There are some of you in this room and you are in serious debt. And you are living paycheck to paycheck and credit card to credit card. And you're struggling to make it and you don't know what you're going to do. There are some of you in this room and you want to be pregnant. You want to have kids or you're wanting to have grandkids. And it's not where your family isn't looking and working out the way you wanted it to be right now in this season. And you don't know how to, how to handle that. There are some of you in this room, and you are addicted to something. You are addicted to some drug. You are addicted to alcohol. You are addicted to pornography, and it has its claws in you, and you don't know how to get around it. There are some of you in this room, and you are depressed clinically and taking medicine for it. There are some of you who are, who are struggling with anxiety or mental illness, and you don't know how to continue living on day by day. And some of you, you're at the point where you're like, you know, I don't know if I want to keep going. On and on and on it goes. People in this room are not in a vacuum. Our lives are messy and they hurt and sometimes they suck. 
And that's not some of us, that's all of us. Life is messy, life is hard. And so there's all these difficult things. And you don't know what's going on in those other people's lives. You don't know what's going on in that mom's life whose kid is running around like a lunatic. You don't know what her week was like. And so sometimes if we react and we go to her and we just scold her and tell her she needs to get her kid under control, you just put another brick on top of all of the weight that's on her shoulders. Instead of taking a brick off, you put one on. And that's not what we're called to be, church. We're called to carry burdens, not add to them. And so when we come together, we don't, we don't need more problems, more stress, more harsh words, more tearing down, more weight. We, we don't need to be more hard on people. We don't need to speak harsh words, tear down, judge. That's unhelpful. We're just stacking more weight on shoulders. You see, we forget that when we get mad or frustrated at a person because they'd annoyed us or was inconvenient to us, we look down on them or whatever, uh, they have a trying personality. Like, we've got trying personalities in this room, right? Sometimes it's hard. You're trying. Uh, we forget that we have no idea what they're going through. We forget that they're frustrating us, but we've got no idea what's going on in their life. They put on a good face, but we don't get it. And they don't need a family stacking more weight on their shoulders. They need a family that will come carry the weight and put up with our annoyances. Because we have no idea, we have no idea how helpful it is sometimes when someone comes to us and encourages us. Sometimes, you know, it, was, it cost us nothing. It was easy to come walk across the room and give an encouraging word to somebody. It cost us nothing. It meant nothing. It meant so little to us. It was so easy. But to them, who is thinking about how they can't go on, it changed their week. It changed their day. It sent them on their path on a completely different direction. And that's what we need. I think encouragement is probably the most underappreciated, underrated gift that there is. You know, you, you've heard of the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That guy was an idiot. He didn't really live in real life. Because sticks and stones can only break my bones, but words will destroy my very soul. Words hurt. And once spoken, they can't be taken back. But on the opposite hand, it's also true that encouraging words, man, they build up. And changes the culture, changes people's lives, changes everything. Um, and so that's what we want to be. That's what we want to do. We don't want to be people who are adding bricks on people's life. We want to be taking them off, encouraging, carrying the load. I want you to think about it this way. Coming to church or being with church people, being in this room, being with these people somewhere else, should feel like an island of shalom and an ocean of rage. It should feel like rest and peace in the midst of turbulent seas. The world out there, life out there, family out there, things going on out there feel chaotic and stressful and wild. But when we come here, we're around these people, it should feel like a breath of fresh air. I'm not walking on eggshells. I don't have to pretend. These are my people. These are my family. They got my back. We go out of these doors every week and get beat down again and again. But when we come in here, it should be restful, peaceful. And by that, I don't mean that when we come in this place, we're never corrected. I don't mean that. I don't mean when we come into these places around these people that we're never reminded that, hey, man, we're living a little bit like the world and we need to repent, we need to change. We absolutely need that. We absolutely need correction. We need rebuke. We need correction. We need, uh, we need the people who are wise to speak into us, into our lives that we might change. 
But when, when, that, when those rebukes, when those changes, when those challenges come, they don't come from someone out here who doesn't know me, doesn't care about me, and it's just a harsh word spoken and, 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 and left, but rather someone who's coming alongside, carrying the load, speaking into my life, saying, hey, man, I'm going to help carry this with you, but we've got to change these things too because that's going to make life better for you. That's how we got to come. That's how we got to approach it. When someone comes to me who I do not see, has seen as cared for me, who has not shown me love, who doesn't have a relationship with me, comes and tries to tell me how to do something, how to change something, I need to do this or that, I am not listening. That is going in one ear and out the other. I get defensive. I get angry. I'm not about it. But when you come to me and you, you've shown me love, you've shown you've cared for me, you've shown you've served me, and that you come in gentleness and humility and say, Brent, I know this is going to be hard to hear, but I want you to know this and see this thing because I think you need to change it. Man, I'm going to hear that. I'm going to receive that. Maybe through tears, maybe through brokenness, but in humility and joy, I'm going to receive it and change because I know you value me deeply. And you're not saying these things to hurt me. You're saying these things to help me. And I think that's really at the core of the truth here, that we want to be a place where everyone knows they are valued deeply. That everyone knows that they matter. Because don't you want that? Like, don't you want to know that you're not here, when you're not here, that people miss you? That when you're not here, that people notice you're gone, that you leave a hole in your absence, that you're cherished, that you're wanted, that you're valued, that you matter? I think Romans 10, uh, 12, 10 sums this up well when he says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Like, don't you want to be in a place where people honor you? That we are, you know, some of us are competitive, right? That it's a competition amongst us that we're going to outdo one another in showing honor to each other. Do you honor people? Do you go up to people and just say, man, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful that you're here. Do you go up to people and say, man, I'm so thankful for what you're doing. You are doing a fantastic job pulling those weeds out there. You're doing a fantastic job running that the slides. You're doing a fantastic job serving in this way of doing this. Do we do it? We honor people. Because guys, if we have a church culture that feels welcoming and honoring and where you're wanted and you're valued and you're seen, then it'll be a place that we never want to leave and that we want to bring everyone else to because it'll be a little taste of heaven on earth. That's what it means, a, a small sample kind of size, what it means to look like to accomplish the one another's of Scripture toward our church family. That's what this covenant does. It beckons us forward, calls us forward to live out those types of things toward our siblings in this church where we outdo one another in showing honor because we value our family so much. So the first implication of this idea of value and being of the same eternal family is that we demonstrate our love to one another through our actions and how we actually care for each other. But the second implication of our being, to, being family is that we fight for unity. By fighting for unity, the church proves its value. It values others over self. By fighting for unity, the church proves it values others over self. You know, many of us, we understand broken families, broken friendships. Uh, many, many of us live, come from or are a part of members, or, you know, families who have been divorced, been broken, uh, family members who no longer talk or speak to one another, families that are fractured, full of tension and regret and animosity and hostility. Many of you have been part of or seen from a distance maybe a church that has kind of done the same thing, that the, they got into a fight, they got into a disagreement, they couldn't come to consensus, and so they were unwilling to compromise or talk through it or work through it, and so the church split and fractured the family, and they went and made two churches. 
We believe that everyone who is a member of this church not only has value as an image bearer, but is of our eternal family. And that means we fight for our unity. Because the health of our family matters. My preferences don't matter. Our unity matters. The New Testament is full of commands for how the church must remain unified. But I like how Paul says it in Ephesians 4.3. He says that you would be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity. Focus in on that for a second. I love that he uses the word eager. The church should be eager to maintain this unity. Eager means chomping at the bit. I can't wait. I am overflowing with excitement to accomplish this. I want so badly to do this. This is the attitude we should have around the unity of our church family. When we see potential divisions, when we see fights, when we see uh, unhealthy things happening in someone else or around us or in us, we don't get out our popcorn and watch. We intervene. We run with a bucket of water and douse the fire. You know, this is really what I see so, so often in moms, particularly moms of uh, kids who are uh, out of the house, grown up. I, I see this in my mom a lot, that all my mom wants is to see her kids and her grandkids, maybe her great-grandkids, you know, be at peace with one another. She just wants to sit back in a chair, cook some dinner, and look out at her family all loving and caring for one another. And so what happens when two of us start fighting, what is she, she runs in there, she's breaking it up. She has no cares what the disagreement is about because all she cares about is our unity. All she cares about is that we are together. She doesn't care about the issue. She cares about our family being together. And that's how we should be. We want to keep our family whole and healthy. But let me also be clear that fighting for unity is not, well, uh, just everyone mind their own business. Everyone will be okay. That's not biblical. We're supposed to be up in each other's business, carrying burdens, calling one another to repentance, admonishing and teaching and stretching one another. And when that happens, there's going to be disagreement. There's going to be tension. There's going to be difference of opinion. And that's okay because unity is not conformity. Unity is harmony. Unity, unity is not, well, we got to all have the exact same opinion, have, think the exact same way. Unity is disagreeing well with love and honor and respect for another person with whom you disagree. Unity sees disagreement not as the problem, uh, a problem to, uh, to change, but a tension to be managed. That disagreement is okay and good and even healthy. That our family is, is not a bunch of clones. We're not a bunch of clones, but a diverse group of of different priorities, different opinions, different thoughts, different preferences, and different wants. But who, for the sake of the family and valuing the family and the mission of God, we set aside many of those things that we value or that we prefer, set them aside for the unity of our family. We can do this because we know the things we have in common are far superior than the things that separate us. Particularly, we know Christ. He's our Savior. We've got a, a, a doctrinal statement that binds us on the big doctrinal things that we think matter. You see, we see that in the New Testament. Like The New Testament commands us to maintain our unity. It doesn't tell us to find unity. It doesn't tell us to create unity. It doesn't tell us to develop unity. We are already unified in Christ. Christ has made us unified. And so our job is to fight to let nothing break it. Christ unifies us. 
And so our opinion about the book of Revelation doesn't separate us. Christ unifies us, and so our preference around what music to play doesn't separate us. Christ unifies us, and so when the church gets rid of the pews and adds chairs, it doesn't divide us. Because Christ is our unity. Our job is to not let anything come in between you and me serving the king together. You see, we might want to serve the king differently. You see, we might have different emphasis on how to serve the king. You see, we might have different priorities on how to serve the king, uh, but how to, how to best serve the king. But we do not allow these things to come in between us because our eyes are not on our differences. Our eyes are on the king. And when all of our eyes are on the king together, I might know that you care more about missions, and this person cares more about discipleship, and this person cares more about outreach, and this person cares more about depth, and this person cares more about making sure the church is super clean, and this church, you know, we all might come about it differently. But our eyes are on the king. And if we're all doing that together with our eyes on the king, the king's going to get served well. Division happens when we take our focus off of Jesus and onto our differences. I read something fascinating this week. I'm reading this biography on Thomas Jefferson because we're getting ready to take a trip to Monticello as his home. And so I was reading this biography, and uh, Thomas Jefferson, the, war, the, the Revolutionary War has started. He has written the Declaration of Independence, scathing the king and, and Britain and all this. And he, he's, he's at home in Monticello. He's kind of separated from the war. He's, he's at home in Monticello. And these British officers move next door. You know, not like, in a, not like in a cul-de-sac or anything, but in the property next door. They move next door to Thomas Jefferson. And they send him a letter inviting him and his wife over for dinner. In the middle of the war, in which this dude ripped the king and s- started the war. Hey, why don't you guys come on over for dinner tomorrow night? What? <laughs> Is this a trap? Like, what's going on? And, and, and the commentator of this biography said that they were able at that time to differentiate the difference between political disagreement and individual disagreement and individual problems and tensions. And so they were able to say, hey, you know what? We disagree on the king and England and, and, and the rebellion and all that. That's fine. Let's just sit down and eat together and enjoy each other's company. That was so striking to me because that is unheard of today. That we are so far away from that day. Guys, just think about 2020 was probably the hardest year for friends and family to navigate in the, since I've been alive. Where you had every issue coming to the forefront. Here's something that you can disagree on and divide over and never talk to your family, your brother, your friend, whoever again. And so we got into all of these disagreements. And churches were trying their best to navigate every situation that we faced, whether it was the race stuff or the, the sick stuff. And, and, and what, churches all over got fractured. People's worst versions of themselves came out, and instead of caring for one another, instead of considering one another more important than ourselves, instead of humility and grace, instead of self-sacrifice and love, we saw hatred and meanness and anger and pride and arrogance, and the sacrificing not of the self, but of sacrificing others on the altar of my way or the highway. And I'm thankful that though it was a difficult season for our church, that for the most part there was, there was humility and grace and long-suffering fighting to maintain unity in a weird time, to talk through those issues. But that wasn't true for everyone. And it wasn't true for every family and every friend group. There are still deep wounds and scars. Words that can't be taken back hurt things that are lasting. 
But the unity of our family matters more than my opinion about masks or vaccines. The unity of our family matters more than who I think is the best political leader and who should get elected and who I think should never get elected. Our unity matters more than the style of music that I want sung or how loud it is or how quiet I want it. Our unity matters more than the color of the walls. People matter more. Our church family matters more. So we fight eagerly to maintain our unity and stay whole. Doesn't mean we can't talk about those things. Doesn't mean we can't disagree with those things. Doesn't mean we can't passionately advocate for those things. But we advocate and then we move on. Our unity matters so much that if uh, the Bible tells us that if I must sacrifice my preferences, that if I must restrain my opinion of supporting something I'm super excited about, we do it. We sacrifice. We, we put ourselves down for the sake of others. Paul, you know, later in 1 Corinthians, Paul goes on to say, look, man, if, I, if, I, if it's going to be an issue for me eating meat sacrificed to idols, I'll never eat meat again. He gives up his freedom, what he knows is right and true for the sake of others. We sacrifice for our family because we value them more than ourselves. We honor them. We value them more than what I want. We value them because Jesus values them and they belong to him. So we keep our eyes on the king. We serve him together, making a big deal of the king, not our differences. And we, don't let our, we let our differences shine because unity isn't conformity. It's not sameness. Unity is harmony. Harmony only comes from diversity. You can only have, you know, you heard a five-part harmony. It can only have that if everyone's singing a different note. And so we come together with our differences, different races, different opinions, different thoughts, different likes and wants, and different ways of attacking or thinking through church stuff. But all together, it makes something beautiful, messy, complicated, beautiful. When the church in diversity has a singular goal of glorifying Jesus, we might all look and think and be different, but together it makes a beautiful picture of the gospel. So truth of our value uh, in our eternal family leads us to how we treat one another. It leads us to fighting for unity. And then finally, by using our gifts and serving the church as blessed by the value individuals uniquely bring. By using our gifts and serving, the church is blessed by the value individuals uniquely bring. You know, we talk a lot about being radical in generosity around here. And that's not just about money. That is about our time. That is about our gifting. And you, you see, when you have experienced the life-changing power of the gospel, it reorients our priorities. And so we come to church not looking for community service. We come to the church not looking to volunteer. Uh, because, uh, you know, we feel like we have to, we feel like we should, we're going to feel bad if we don't at least contribute some. No, we come to give our lives in service because our lives have been redeemed and transformed by this king. And so we have undying loyalty and devotion to him. And we come to serve in his mission and to serve his people. Now our family, uh, his people, our family, not just with great effort. We come serving not just with all of our strength, but with our unique gifting. We come serving uniquely how God has wired us and made us and, 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 and gifted us. You see, the Holy Spirit not only lives inside of us, but he empowers us and gifts us uniquely that we might serve the Lord and his church. You see, you aren't just valuable. You also bring value when you come here. 1 Corinthians 12 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, to another works of miracles, of prophecy, to the, end of the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who appoints to each one individually as he wills. 
To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit. Every follower of Jesus has been gifted uniquely by God for, for, for uh, the church's good, the mission of God, and God's people. You have been gifted uniquely. You were not left out. I want you to hear me say that. Like, God didn't, didn't skip you. He's gifted you. You might not be aware of what that gift is at the moment, but God has gifted you for service in his family and for his mission. He wants to use you. He wants you to be fulfilled in using your gifts and serving God's people. In 1 Corinthians, Paul goes on to describe the body. He says, we are one body with diff- many different parts. There are, you've got eyes and a nose and ears and, 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 and hands and feet and all these different things. And they all have different functions, right? Everyone's got a different function, different job, different purpose, different way of getting things done, different, things, different ways of doing things. But it's one body. One function, one purpose, one body, one whole. And Paul says the nose can't say to the ear, we don't need you, ear. We, all we need to do is smell in this place. We don't need to hear anything. We just need to smell. And in the same way, the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Hey, man, we just need to catch things. We don't need to go anywhere. We don't need you feet. We're just, we're, we're just about grabbing things around here. We're not about walking around. No, we can't say that. We can't say that. We need all of it. We need all of it. His point is we in the church, we're one body, get different parts, all different, all unique, but bring specific value. You bring particular, unique value. Imagine not being able to smell or not being able to take a walk or not being able to feel or not being able to see. All individual senses together make the whole body as it is meant to be. In the same way, you are unique. God has wired you uniquely, gifted you uniquely, and he's brought you to this family so that you might bring that particular value and uniqueness to bear on our church and the mission of Jesus. And if you hold back, if you do not contribute using your gifts to give and to serve this body, not only are you missing out on God's purpose for your life and not feeling fulfilled, but we, we are slighted and we miss out and we are lesser for not having the joy of what your gifting and value is to the whole. Imagine walking around without a nose, never getting to experience the joy of smelling Thanksgiving dinner. Smelling a rose. We miss out on that value that you uniquely bring when you stay on the sideline. I want you to imagine with me for a moment what Fellowship Church, Fellowship Baptist Church would be like without Patty Hale. Without her smile and joy that she brings when she just be bopping around. Imagine our church without the Hamblins and the millions of things they do around here. Imagine our church without Dan Jenkins and Bill Nothing would ever get fixed. Imagine our church without John Gannon and his personalized, brewed, roasted coffee that he labors over for us. Amen. Imagine our church without the senior ladies class. I mean, who would complain about anything? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I couldn't help it. I love y'all too much. I couldn't help it. No, but seriously, seriously, imagine our life without their class and the encouragement that they give me. And they give so many people. Truly, our church would be lesser without those ladies and all that they do. Imagine our church without Cindy and Melissa and Kelly and Kathy and Ashley and the Mises and Kim and Diane and Ron and and Miss Nikki and the farmers and everyone else that I'm missing who faithfully serve our kids in kids ministry. 
imagine our life without our church, without those faithfully pouring into the next generation. Imagine our church without those who are serving in our youth ministry. Imagine our church without people who know how to run tech and all that the tech ministry gets to provide for us. Imagine our church without security and just letting anybody walk in here and, and do something. Imagine our church without those who labor skillfully and practice so they might play beautiful music that we might worship God. Imagine our church without those who teach and labor and study our Sunday school classes and pour spiritual growth into people. And imagine life without those who lead in our D groups. Imagine our church without Danny Constable at the door, always ready to greet you with a smile and give a worship guide to literally everyone whether you can read or not. I could go on and on and on. Time is preventing me from talking about so many others who bless our church. Imagine our church without them. And then we can't imagine our church without some of you because you haven't got in yet. You're still on the sideline. We haven't met you. We haven't seen the full uniqueness of your gifting brought to bear on the life of our church. But we want to. We want to see it. And every new person that comes and gets in and gets plugged in and gets connected and begins to serve, man, it enriches all of us. To have you. And we are lesser when we miss out on the unique gifting and wiring that God has made you when we don't have you to bear on our lives. Part of what it means to covenant together is that we are going to show up and serve. We are going to bring our unique gifting to bless this family and to serve the mission of God. It means we're going to give up our time, our energy, our talents to serve this family well so that the gospel would shine in how we love and care for each other. That the world may know by how we love each other. And think, I'm, I, the world would, would see us and think, you know what? I don't know if I believe all this Jesus stuff, but I'd like to be a part of that community. I don't know if I, I believe all this stuff about this dude getting up from the dead and all that. But man, what they got going over, on over there. The way they care for one another, the way they serve one another, the way they treat one another. I'd really like to have that. So maybe, maybe I'll think about this whole Jesus stuff after all. Let's be the sort of community that people say, I don't know about Jesus, but I want what they've got. And so maybe, just maybe I'll think about Jesus after all. Let's pray. Father, I love you so much. We're thankful for our church. We're thankful for every member and every person who loves and serves and gives their time to make this place shine, the light of the gospel brighter. We're thankful for everyone I mentioned. We're thankful for those that I didn't have time to mention, those that serve behind the scenes, that get things done, that care for, love and serve. I think about people who... who Send encouraging cards to people that no one else knows happens or does, but, but some people take it upon themselves to, to, to write a letter and put it in the mail and send it to somebody to encourage them. I think about the people who are serving behind the scenes that cut grass and weed flower beds and, um, and, and, run, and just do things that are all behind the scenes no one knows. I think about the people who walk up to someone and say, hey, man, I just want you to know you're valued, you're loved, you're doing a great job. We're so thankful for our church. And Father, would you help us not to stop here, but to, to, to grow. And as we grow and bring in new people, that the uniqueness of their abilities and their wiring and their skills and their personality would be brought to bear on the life of our church. And that we would be even richer for experiencing them as a part of us. 
a part of now the same body, the same whole. God, that's the vision that we have. That's the covenant we want to fulfill. And we're thankful for it. God, help us to, to keep striving after that. If you're here this morning and you would say to me, Brent, that all sounds great, but I don't know this Jesus. I don't understand how he died for my sins. I don't understand how he was raised from the dead. I don't get all that. I'd like to know more. I'm going to stand up here on the left as we sing this last song. And if you want to know more about that, you just come up and talk with me and we can talk through that a little bit. What it means for you to follow him. What it means for you to have your sins forgiven and a fresh start. And you can enter into a community that's struggling, that's sinful, that's broken, but is beautiful at the same time. Enter into that. Father, we're thankful for this family. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. All people said, amen. Let's stand together.